Amen. Please be seated. Today is Pentecost Sunday, which is seven weeks after Easter, and it's the date on the Christian calendar, as it's called, that reminds us of God sending the Holy Spirit uh, to those disciples who were waiting for the Spirit to come, as Jesus had uh, told them, so that they would be empowered to bring the gospel to the world. And so I don't need a special sermon for today because God has ordained that we have arrived at a passage that speaks of God's glory over all the earth. And so in by providence on Pentecost Sunday, I ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 37. 37, we'll start around verse 5. Now you will remember last week we started this uh, story, this epic, this historic interlude in the middle of this prophetic, poetic book. We have a history of what occurred um, when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, brought his armies through his generals down to Jerusalem. Really all that was left to conquer was Jerusalem as far as the ancient Near and Middle East are concerned. Now there were other threats. Babylon was rising and there were some threats from the south, north of Africa uh, that were coming up to confront Assyria eventually. So it's not as though the world was at complete uh, under the domination of Assyria, but there was a, an, a, a spot there, right there in the ancient Near East, called Jerusalem, that they needed to conquer. And that was their intention as they came to the walls of Jerusalem and threatened to uh, destroy Jerusalem and its inhabitants, Judah, uh, kill their kings, send their people into exile, do what they had done in other city-states. And they paused at the wall. Remember, that's the story from last week, when Rabshakeh, the general of the Assyrians, threatened Hezekiah and basically tried to intimidate him into surrendering so there didn't have to be a battle. Um, They would have brought terrible devastation to the inhabitants of Judah no matter what, uh, but they were hoping to convince them just to open up the walls and let them conquer uh, at will. Hezekiah, up till that point, had struggled spiritually. He had struggled with his trust in the covenants uh, made before him with his people and promised God's provision for them. But he started to awaken as God brought him to his lowest place of desperation. We call it rock bottom. He trusted in God again. And we see from his actions, he goes to the temple and he talks to the priests who in turn talk to Isaiah, the prophet, asking Isaiah to pray for the situation, which shows a humility on the part of a, a, a Judah king that we had not seen before and not recently. And through this episode... God speaks to Isaiah and then to not only Judah, but also to Assyria. And he holds off their siege, which we'll see in these opening verses that I'll read, starting in verse 5. Then some time passes, which I'll note in the text, because you don't see it unless I note it for you. The king of Assyria himself, not through his general this time, but he himself sends a message through a messenger, like a mail carrier, and basically says, okay, enough, time's up, we're coming in. So he holds them off for a little bit, sends back Rabshakeh, but then they come back with their final threat to take Judah. That's the context here as I read Isaiah 37, 5 through 20. The passage is on your outline. However, you will need your Bible open because when we get to the end of chapter 37, I don't have the verses printed there. They're on page 597 in your pew Bible. Here, the word of the Lord. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah... Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, 
Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. He's talking about the Rabshakeh, the general. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. So just as God had prophesied through Isaiah, Assyria was a bit confused in their actions, and the Sennacherib had turned towards others, and so the Rabshakeh didn't want to jump in in battle down in Jerusalem while the rest of the armies were heading another direction. Just as Isaiah prophesied, there's confusion, there's rumors, and more rumors. Verse 9, which happens later now. This is another episode a few months or years later. We're not exactly sure. But this is when Assyria refocuses on coming in on Jerusalem. Now, the king heard, the king being Sennacherib, the king heard concerning Tirhakah, king of Cush. He is set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Thus, you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So now Sennacherib is feeling the press of another nation and decides he needs to act swiftly and take Jerusalem and sends another message to Hezekiah. Notice the difference in Hezekiah's response now. Verse 11, Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden, who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of the Saravain, the king of Hena, the king of Iva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Let us pray. Father, our desires are so often centered around our happiness and our well-being. Lord, I pray for you to open our eyes to your glory. It's true that we pray for you to bless us and to make our way smooth. But Lord, what we really need is to have our wills aligned with your will. Because that is where we will find peace, security, and joy. The things we strive after or think we want so much. Lord, this world is yours, the people and everything in it. It is your glory that matters the most. You are the only one who deserves glory. You are the true and the living God, and you have inexplicably loved us to the point of sending your son Jesus 
to redeem us and make us your own. We are humbly in awe of you and of your glory. As we read of your ancient deliverance of Judah, encourage us afresh with a sense of your passion for the glory that only you deserve. And so make us to be your joyful people who know your judgments are always right and your salvation is always gracious. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When you see people uh, take actions or do things, you ask yourself the question in your head usually, what makes them do what they do? Why did they do that? What motivates that person? You say it in personal relationships. Parents do it about their children. What makes he or she do this? Uh, children do it about their parents. What makes mom and dad do this? We do it about people uh, that are friends. What makes them tick? What drives them? What motivates them? At the workplace, all the time, people trying to figure out what motivates another person. All of this is a big part of what we spend our time thinking about. We see actions, uh, we hear words, and we wonder what motivated that action or those words or this pattern of actions or this uh, regularity of these words. What motivates? What a question. What a pursuit. As I have read on this topic, there are many motivations noted. I've always thought people to be pretty simple, maybe just a few, and maybe I'm just thinking through my own motivations. But I found lists upon lists, and they all started to really resonate with me. Yeah, that's true. People are motivated by different things, at least superficially it seems that way. Some people are just ambitious. They're drive, 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 and they just always have to have something to do, and that motivates them to do the next thing. Some people, it's all about money, what they can gain materially from doing what they do. That's what motivates them. The actions they take, the words they speak, driven towards some kind of physical or material gain. Some people are motivated by independence, a sense that they have their freedom, that nobody can tell them what to do. And everything they do is bent towards keeping their freedom or manifesting their freedom. People will be motivated by a sense of security or peace or stability, and they'll do what they do thinking it will provide for them this kind of thing. People will try to build up their self-esteem, the good feeling they get from accomplishing some kind of task. Some people are motivated by recognition that other people give. Some people want to make a difference, so they, they act out in a way that they think will have an impact on the world around them. Some people are just competitive. They just want to beat people. And once they finish beating one person or one thing or one company or whatever, uh, on to the next one. And that's what drives them. That's what motivates them. Everybody has something that drives them, at least at a superficial level. Well, when you're reading Scripture and you watch the actions of God, and that's what the Bible relays for us, the whole history of his workings, it's, it's a right question to ask, what motivates God to do what he does? We're in the thick of some really intense stories of God's deliverance, his interaction with his people, his interaction with the nations. What motivates God? And theologians have tried to answer this with various descriptions. They'll use some of God's attributes to describe them as his his motivating feature. Certainly some would say the love of God is what motivates him. Others might say God is good and he's kind and he's compassionate and that's what motivates him. Some will say it's the holiness of God that motivates him. Now all of these have truth to them. There's elements of truth in these attributes of God and how they drive god to do what he does but there is one attribute of god you might say that seems to rise to the top over and over it will be sometimes out in front sometimes behind the scenes i think here we get it quite plainly and if we grasp it i think it will help us in our overall experience of peace and joy in god through christ 
Uh, we're the friends of God because of Christ. But he has a driving motivation that's true for the world over. And his motivation is to maintain and to manifest the glory that is only his. In fact, you could say the reason he creates everything is so that he has a way, you might say, to communicate his glory. God didn't have to create anything and he'd still be glorious. But by creating, he has now opportunity to manifest glory and he will always work to manifest that glory. Now, if you're the friend of God through Christ, no longer at war with him, you're on the right side of that. And when he glorifies himself, we receive benefit, peace, and joy. In fact, you could say that the theme of Isaiah is the Lord saves. You might say that's the theme of the Bible. Why does the Lord save? To manifest his great glory. That's why he saves. So you see, as the people of God, when we come in line with his will, which, by the way, is what prayer is, we offer up our will, hoping it's in accordance with his will, so that our will changes as God manifests what his will finally is. That's the process of prayer, really. And we're praying for his glory. And if we do that, we will find peace and joy in the whole of our lives. It will change the way we look at life, the way we talk to God, the way we come to him in worship. And I think it's on very vivid display in the passage before us. There is a a tremendous essay written by Jonathan Edwards, uh, an American Puritan author. It's a long one, like everything Edwards writes. He says he has a short title. Well, he has a long title usually, but compared to how much he writes about it, it's short. He said, as a title, the end for which God created the world. What's the purpose of all things? It's a tremendous essay, but it takes a long time to work through. So about 20 years ago, John Piper wrote a book to try to explain what Edwards said. It's humorous because he says as many words to say what Piper said or what Edwards said, but it's a great book. And it's called God's Passion for His Glory. And he lays out this feature of God's working in His purpose. I think it's a worthwhile read for anyone. But essentially what he, sa- he says is if we can understand God's passion for His own glory, then we will be steered in a direction of peace and joy as whatever happens in our life happens. The key text in the passage before us in chapter 37 is verse 20. It captures the why for what God is doing and how he's interacting. As Hezekiah prays, he says, So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand. Why? That all the kingdoms of earth may know that you alone are the Lord. He doesn't appeal to God's love for Hezekiah and Judah. He appeals for God's love for himself. Now, I understand that strikes us weird as Americans. It's okay. It's the only time it's okay for anyone to love themselves. God can love himself. And we should rejoice in that love he has for himself. And as we come to understand this, we can pray with a, a better understanding of God's motivation. He says, save us from his hand. Why? So that the kingdoms of earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Now, wait a minute. God loves us for sure. And our eternity is secure in him. We are his children. That's for sure. But that is secondary to what he is ultimately doing and bringing glory to himself. We just get to be part of what he is doing. And that's another aspect of God's grace. I love how Piper puts it. God created the world to exhibit the fullness of his glory in the God-centered joy of his people. King Hezekiah finally gets this, and it revives his life and spirituality. 
God is passionate about his namesake and he saves his people in order to manifest his glory. And when we realize that our purpose is to manifest God, we're able to live with peace and joy no matter what the circumstances. In fact, when Piper talks about missions, why we spread the gospel to the world, a great topic for Pentecost Sunday, he says world missions is a declaration of the glories of God among the unreached peoples with a view to gathering worshipers who magnify God through the gladness of radically obedient lives. Now we'll see more of that featured as we look at the passage together. Understanding God's passion for his own glory will steer believers in the way of peace and joy. And if we get this, it will change our lives. It will change everything that we see, how we see it, what we do, and why we do it. Let's look at this epic climax of Assyria's confrontation of Judah in the text before us. First, starting at verse 5, we have the continued mocking of God by the Assyrians. Now, I mentioned there's a gap here in time, and you'll see where it comes. There are two confrontations. The first one we left off with last week when a somewhat timid Hezekiah receives the word from the Rabshakeh. And remember, he tears his clothes, and he mourns, and he goes to the temple. He doesn't go directly to talk to Isaiah himself. He sends some priests to speak to Isaiah. And then Isaiah, who is requested to pray, responds with an oracle or a word right away. And that's the first few verses. Look there, verse 5. When the servants of the king of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. And then Isaiah tells them what he's going to do to hold off this invasion. Verse 7, Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So Sennacherib is the king. He sent Rabshakeh, and God's going to send confusion so that Rabshakeh, the general, pulls the troops back, at least temporarily. Verse 8, The Rabshakeh returned. And notice what he finds. He found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, which is in a totally different region. This would divide the armies if this kept up. So there's confusion, just like Isaiah forecasted. For he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Lachish was a city that they had already taken, and now they pulled out of it. So the immediate response to Hezekiah's first request is to hold off the Assyrians for a little longer. We don't know how much time goes, But in some months or some years, not more than two years, Cush, which is south, starts to make a push against Assyria, and Sennacherib the king gets nervous. Now you'll notice starting in verse 9, we don't hear of the Rabshakeh again, no reference to Egypt, none of that. So time has gone by. This is the second time that Hezekiah is confronted with a threat from Assyria, so the army is on its way again. Verse 9, now the king heard concerning Terhakah, king of Cush. He has set out to fight against you. So anxiety sets in a bit. Okay, we've got to settle this Jerusalem matter. When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, notice the mocking. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So what he does is he mocks God in God's word. He knows what God's word has said to them, trust him. He's saying, don't trust them. Now, 
pay attention to this because this parallels many events in history. When a culture immersed in the prophetic word of God, like our country would be, when the word of God is it's prevalent, it's all, it's everywhere, whether they believe it or not, it's there, it's there, it's there. And when the culture responds by saying, we don't believe what that word says and we'll do something else, that is mockery of God. And that's the worst thing that could happen. See, God's judgment comes most swiftly when we mock him. He can be tolerant of sin as the gospel goes forth and sinners come to Christ. Even the worst, uh, the most sinful of circumstances doesn't evoke the immediate judgment. But when that same place repels the word of God and then mocks God, their time is short. And that's what happens for Assyria. Top of the ancient Near East and Middle East world, it's all going to crash down precisely because of Sennacherib's view of God and the words that he speaks with his mouth. Verse 11. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Your God's not going to deliver us any more than the other gods did in the other places. Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozen, Haran, Rezeph, the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where's the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad? Probably dead, probably cut into pieces. That's where they probably are, and everybody knows it. And the people of Eden who were in, or excuse me, and the king of the city of the Seravim, and the king of Hena, and the king of Iva. They're all gone. They're dead. Everybody knows it. Their gods didn't help them. Now, I want you to notice in this mocking uh, the response that we'll find from Hezekiah, which will lead into the next point. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Now, before we see this response of Hezekiah, which is so exemplary for us. Notice something about our God. Nothing angers him like attempted robbery of his glory. And that's what mockery is. It's an attempt to rob the glory of God. Hezekiah sees the heart of a serious message. It's one of self-glory and arrogance, and it's in the face of the sovereign one of Israel, God himself. What is it to mock God? It's to disrespect, to dishonor, to ignore him. As one commentator puts it, it is a serious offense committed by those who have no fear of God or who deny his existence. The most easily recognized form of mockery is disrespect disrespect typified by verbal insults or other acts of disdain, ridicule, scoffing, mocking, defiance. In Scripture, if you read the Psalms, there are several times in which God uh, accounts for or talks about scoffers or mockers. Fools mock God. The wicked mock God. Enemies of God mock him. The proud mock God. Haters of knowledge mock God. The unteachable mock God. And those who mock God will mock the people of God as well. We absolutely live in a day of great turmoil. And every generation probably thinks that of their circumstance. But we're in such a circumstance, I would submit. We're in a frayed and divided land. The thing that should give us most concern, as I have mentioned, however, the most worry should come not from the rampant sin that's always true where people are, because the gospel's there and the gospel frees us from sin. But rather, it's the mockery that you see compounding against Almighty God and His Word. That's where it starts to get serious. We're not living in a place of ignorance to God's standards. We're in a place that is saturated with the prophetic word of God that goes forth, even in imperfections. We're living in a day 
where there is a clear witness for God's word and standards in the churches, on the radio, in the business place, the marketplace, on television, from the mouth of various messengers. Yet despite the revelation from God's word and his people, the culture turns to do its own thing, essentially mocking God. Paul says to the Galatians, let uh, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. The mockery of God by Sennacherib in the passage we have sets the stage for Hezekiah's second appeal to God. And let's look there. Verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. This is the right way to make an appeal to God. This is what we see happening through Hezekiah. Uh, the first time he was threatened, he went to the temple, sought Isaiah's help through the priests. Remember that? Now the second time he's being threatened, a spiritually renewed king goes directly to God in prayer with the appeal. He doesn't go to the priest, doesn't go to Isaiah, goes right to God with what, what Sennacherib had said and lays it before God. What a difference in how he now confidently approaches the throne of grace. Look what he says. What a prayer. Verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib. Notice he doesn't say, look at how your people are suffering. Oh, look at what our problem is. That's not what he says. That's not the big problem here. Lord, look what this pagan king is saying about you which he has sent to mock the living God, verse 17. Verse 18, truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. It's true, they're powerful. And have cast their gods into the fire, those false gods of those nations. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore this, they were destroyed. So now, in light of this, Lord, so now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand. Why? that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Lord, don't save us for the sake of relieving our discomfort. Don't save us so that we might avoid hardship. Don't save us based on any glory that we might receive. Save us on the basis of maintaining your name and glory on the earth. Open your eyes and see, O Lord. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock you. Save us that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Do what is necessary to maintain your name on the earth. The appeal to God was not for their comfort, for their safety. It was for the preservation of God's glory. I'm reading a book in conjunction with preaching these sermons. It's like a commentary, but reads more like a devotional from a pastor who preached through these, uh, through Isaiah. And I love what he says. And there's, I'm not as profound as him. And I want to share it with you because this is, very helpful. It's been helpful to me, and I think it will be for you. How does the doctrine of the glory of God or God's passion for his glory help you today in your thought process and your prayers? Listen to what Ray Ortland says. Have you come to realize how the God-centeredness of God is good news for you? For one thing, it means that your unworthiness is irrelevant to God's readiness to save you. He is not responding to what you deserve. Thankfully, right? He is proving what a good savior he is. Don't you see this opens up a new definition of happiness? Happiness is God being God to you. Stop praying, Lord, I want you to make my life better. Lord, 
I want you to make my husband or my wife better. I want my children to behave. I want an ideal job. When you pray that way, you can only end up frustrated because God will not subordinate himself to any human agenda. Start praying, Lord, I just want you to be God to me. I want my life with my problems to show the world that you save sinners. That is a paradigm shift that is biblical and right. It would unleash the people of God if we started worrying more about the glory of God than our hide. In fact, we would actually welcome the opportunity to manifest the glory of God through even persecution. The passage ends, starting at verse 21, with judgment and salvation. The judgment of God coming upon Assyria and the effect of salvation upon his people who have seen his deliverance once again. Just a couple years before this, Assyria was closing out victories in surrounding cities and kingdoms. Now, God prays to stop them, or Hezekiah prays to stop them for the sake of God's name. And we have the response of God. Look at verse 21. Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And here's a pause to teach a bit on this topic very simply. God is sovereign, absolutely orders whatsoever comes to pass, yet he incorporates in his sovereignty the responsibility of man to pray. You see it here. We know God's in control of the situation. And he says, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. So what comes next is written to Assyria. Understand that. She despises you. This is Judah. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Now he's speaking of Judah's outlook on Assyria to Assyria. Verse 23. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? And he'll answer... It is against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, with, with my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt." Have you not heard, this is God responding to that arrogance, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I plan from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruin. I'm the one who gave you any of these victories, Assyria. Did you not know? Verse 27, while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. And because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn your back on the way by which you came. And this shall be a sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. And in the second year, what springs from that, 
In the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward. He's going to pull them away. He'll give them sustenance for a bit while he rebuilds Judah, so to speak. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. You will not destroy my people. In the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you remember where this comes from? Isaiah chapter 9, when he'll send the wonderful counselor, our our great God, the mighty God, everlasting Father, the forecast of Jesus to come, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Assyria, I will turn you back. You'll have a little more time. I will make a remnant of my people, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will make this happen, and you cannot stop it. Verse 33, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. And by the way he came, by that way he will return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. And why does he do this? Verse 35, for I will defend this city to save it. Why? For my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. For my glory and the promise I made, I will do this thing. And these are sober words in verse 36. In the angel of the Lord, you can always be worried when you hear it start this way. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Now, Sennacherib in his glory was stripped with this kind of a defeat. Not a sword raised in his, a massive portion of his forces destroyed. And no glory could go to Judah. It wasn't Judah who did this. It was the angel of the Lord. All glory is God's, even this deliverance. Verse 37 has such an opposing picture to what we see in the king of Judah. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh in shame. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, I want to stop there. Do you remember what Hezekiah did when he first was confronted with the Assyrian crisis? He went to the temple of his God, talked to the priest there, wanted to hear the word of the Lord through Isaiah. And as a result, God worked revival in him and brought them life. Sennacherib turns and goes to the temple of his false god, Nisroch, and while he is there, Adremelech and Sherzar, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Irshadon, his son reigned in his place. There's only one God you can appeal to. This whole episode begins with this arrogance in the enemies of God, and it turns that swiftly towards those who are in covenant with the God of the universe. Understanding God's passion for his own glory will steer believers in the way of peace and joy. I have often thought of the motivations and the courage of those who died or have died over the history of the world for their faith in Christ. And I think it's, it's fine enough to say that they were so grateful for the grace of God in Christ that they were willing to die for that testimony. I believe that's certainly a driving motivation. But when you hear some of the words spoken by the ancient martyrs, especially the ones of the first and second century, when Rome was cracking down before Constantine legalized Christianity, there were all sorts of 
crazy edicts given out to leaders in the church to keep them in check. And one such edict was that they had to burn incense in prayer to the Roman emperor. This is at the end of the, or the beginning of the second century. And there was Polycarp, who was a pastor over the area of Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Polycarp was late in years, and he was a disciple of the Apostle John. And he had turned out many elders from his church that started other churches. And it was brought to the attention of the Roman authorities in Smyrna that this old bishop refused to burn incest to the Roman, to the Roman emperor. And here it was that they came to him and said, you will burn if you won't burn the incense. We will burn you. And he said, so be it. And they stoked the fire and they started to burn Polycarp. And as he was dying, before, just before he died, listen to what he said, because I think it gives us something of his understanding of God's passion for his glory. 86 years have I served him, Polycarp says, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior. You know what blasphemy is? It's speaking disrespect. It's mocking God. How could I mock God? Understanding God's passion for his own glory will steer believers in the way of peace, in the way of joy. I close with words that John Piper wrote in his book, God's Passion for His Glory. He says that God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. That's what I hope we do. I hope we rejoice in the glory of God. Not just that we see it and acknowledge it. It's everywhere. The heavens declare the glory of God. The word of God declares his glory. But it's not just to see it. It's to embrace it and to rejoice in it. That's what he says. When those that see it then delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. Let's pray. Lord, we do not pray for you to fix everyone around us. We do not pray for our our will to be done. No, instead, we want your glory to be on display for all to see. We want you to manifest yourself as God to us and through us. We want our lives with our successes, our challenges, our failures, our trials, the issues that we face. We want these to show the world that you save sinners through Christ. Indeed, do your will through our lives that all the kingdoms of earth may know that you alone are the Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.